there's a kind of intellectual anxiety, I suppose, behind this need to like constantly be authentic in some way, like to be always writing from a place of like genuine preoccupation and interest rather than to sometimes just like write because you have to write or whatever. Like also this idea that you need to be constantly interested in stuff that you're writing about, that you need to really be perturbed by what you're writing, but whatever subject you're writing about it sometimes seems to betray an anxiety to me that the world isn't actually interesting in in a way. Like it's almost like he has to inject it with, he has to animate the world for you and maybe for himself. That was Lola Seaton on the urgency and infectiousness of Stanley Cavell's style. You're listening to The Point Podcast. So I'm here with uh, Lola Seaton for the second episode of The Point Podcast. And Lola is an editor, an associate editor at the New Left Review and a contributing writer to The New Statesman. Her writing has appeared in the London Review of Books, the New York Review of Books, and most recently, or most importantly, at least for this conversation, in The Point, where she wrote in issue 28 about the American philosopher Stanley Cavell. And specifically, Lola wrote about Cavell's highly idiosyncratic and to some highly infuriating style of writing as a philosopher. It's also relevant to this conversation, uh, Lola, that you studied literature as opposed to philosophy in graduate school, which is part of sort of what makes it strange, as you indicate in the piece that you ended up writing your dissertation on Cavell. So I sort of wanted to start by asking you how you first came across Cavell And if you remember the first time you encountered his writing and kind of what you thought of it. Yeah, so I feel like I've now written about Cavell and my experience of Cavell enough to sort of have stylized my memory of (laughs) the first encounter. So I'm not sure if I can um, remember the actual first encounter. But yeah, I I did come across him as an English, well, literature student, English student is how we say it in the UK. But but there was a, a Shakespeare kind of a whole semester is devoted to Shakespeare in the course that I did. And um, I guess we were assigned his um, essay on King Lear called The Avoidance of Love. So yeah, I wish I could remember the moment when I actually first read that essay, but that must have been my my kind of gateway to him. And then I probably read like his other essays on Shakespeare. He wrote essays on, you know, Othello, Hamlet and so on, um, in which were collected in a collection called Disowning Knowledge eventually. So yeah, that was, I guess, like how I came to him. So not at all from philosophy. Right. But then I did sort of just continue with him. So I then did read his like much more, his kind of, well, he didn't write conventional philosophy, but like his his more p- kind of purely philosophical works, I suppose, like his, The Claim of Reason, which is his big, it was kind of a rewriting of his his PhD thesis, but like heavily reworked masterpiece that was ended up being published like 18 years or later or something I kind of had no experience of philosophy really but rather than me coming at him through philosophy I kind of and he, he was my entryway to philosophy of, of so I would read some of the philosophies he wrote about so like Ludwig Wittgenstein and Jerry Austin and people like that who who he wrote about and loved and do you, do you remember just like when you first read him in that in the in the avoidance of love essay? Like, did you have some kind of reaction to how he wrote or what what his writing style was? Yeah, it must. I, I must. I must have done. Um, yeah, that's like a really long essay. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, um, and a very unconventional. Like, it was not like he was writing ordinary ordinary literary criticism. Really, um, I guess like. I don't know that I immediately loved his style. I think we're going to like talk more more about his his the detail of what his style is like. Um but it can be quite difficult and so I doubt that it was like I was kind of immediately seduced by literally like his phrasing or whatever, but I think that there was something like I guess appealing about the profundity of the way he writes about about everything really, but about um Shakespeare like he he writes about it kind of in relation to skepticism which um yeah this is like this problematic about like whether we can know like that object is over there or whether we can know other minds and whether like and then he introduces this idea of like acknowledgement and I guess it's this like intersection of like the psychoanalytic with the with the philosophical with the literary that somehow 
appealed to me. And it seemed, I suppose, like in an academic context, reading like literature, you were often writing about literature in quite technical, formalist ways. And I think he, I guess, presented a way of reading literature that seemed like to be reading literature in a way that um, reminded you that it was like written by other humans, like for other humans. Right, um, right. Like, the characters on the page like had, like you could like, I guess, not exactly relate to them as people, but that you cared about them. And I guess it had that it infused the kind of, yeah, like human affective um, thing, which I guess sometimes as a student, you might've felt was denied to you or that you were required to ignore when you put on your kind of like professional head. Yeah, I remember feeling as someone who came from literary studies also like to Caval that there was this kind of, um, you know, we had this debate in literary studies about the intention of the author and how much it mattered. And there were critics that said, you know, you shouldn't care about the intention at all. And there were those who said it was it was the main thing that mattered. But I felt like Cavell sort of he allowed you to make a kind of end run around this question by paying attention to one thing that's like undeniable, which is that a literary work intends to communicate with an audience, you know, and like that intention is something one like should be attentive to in, in reading it and thinking about like thinking about this as an act of communication, whatever else it is. And I think actually that when you do read his more conventional philosophy or, or like his non-literary writing anyway, like that idea of, yeah, all kinds of statements being acts of communication, I think is, is also what's appealing about him in general, not just about his Shakespeare-ish criticism, because I think like the way he writes about philosophers and the things they say and the arguments they make, which might kind of seem uninteresting or wrong or irrelevant or like crazy or incoherent or whatever. I think what's very powerful about his 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 mode of attention to that is that he, it seems to all predicated on an idea that people philosophers or King Lear or whoever are like driven to their utterances by kind of reasonable, like they think they're being reasonable in, in their context. And like our job is to kind of try and understand like why what they're saying feels necessary to say to them or why that makes sense to them, which I think is like a very powerful and kind of widely transferable way of like thinking about speech and comprehending other people basically. But yeah, I think he does exactly that in, in the King Lear essay too. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite, I'm glad you said that about comprehending other people, because I think one of the really cool things about Cavell, I mean, it's, it's strange in a way, this is so rare in reading philosophy, but it's actually like, you read him, and you really do feel like you have new insights about like your friends and family. And I mean, just to like, stay on the, the, the Lear essay for a minute, which I also was like, it wasn't the first thing I read by him, but it was definitely probably the most impactful early thing I read called King Lear and the, the Acknowledgement of Love. Is that, uh, the, the Avoidance of Love, I think. The, the Avoidance of Love. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> God, I got confused two of his favorite words. Um, but, you know, he, he makes this point about the opening scene uh, where Lear is dividing up his kingdom and he's trying to give one third to each of his three daughters and uh, he gets so angry when Cordelia kind of says, I'm not going to play this game and um, and flatter you for this land. And and she, she says, I'm not going to do it because I actually love you. I'm not going to put on like a charade. And um, it's just one of those things where like there's been 400, you know, four or 500 years of criticism of this play. And you get the feeling when you read Cavell, he reads the scene in this very commonplace way that you've never thought of before about that tries to explain why it is that King Lear gets so angry at Cordelia and, and doesn't recognize what she's doing as a kind of act of love or reacts the way he does to it. And he says, basically, I just always remember boiling it down to like, look, this is like a very common situation. We all know it's a parent who's, who's declining in power, trying to bribe their children to love them. You know, and and two of them accept the bribe, and one of them calls him on it and says, "I'm not going to play this bribe." And that's where the psychoanalytic stuff comes in, and sort of you see why he reacts with this kind of rage to the one who says, "Like, I'm not going to play this game." Um, and it really was like the idea, the idea that he's avoiding love because love, unlike bribery, comes with certain responsibilities that one has to fulfill as a human being and not just as a king, you know, or as someone who has power. And so I started seeing this in people around me, like, oh, yeah, avoidance of love, like, this is a real thing. And I see how it explains certain behavior of people in my life. 
Yeah. That was, I don't know. That's an amazing experience. Yeah, no, actually, I, I, I think I had much the same reaction to that. Like, um, and I think it's actually quite difficult to to extract those insights without sounding really banal or like general. Like, you know, I was trying to think about like, what is it that Cavell teaches us about humanity or whatever about? And it'll be like, like his readings lead to sometimes a kind of distillation of his, like an aphoristic insight about the human condition kind of thing. And like, it will be stuff like, like how to acknowledge our separation from others or like, it's like these very like, yeah, just like completely fundamental aspects of what it's like to yeah have a family and like be a person but out of context they can not have the power they do in the essay but but yeah I totally had that experience at like just I mean I guess that it, it totally made me realize uh yeah I mean like the, the King Lear kind of like paradigm in like yeah as you say like in my own like even family and stuff and every time my mother now gets like a really nice house for us to all come to on the holidays so that we'll all come be with like together on the holidays I think of like the King Lear you know in, in like California I think of the King Lear like example <laughs> yeah yeah no exactly and like it's kind of like why does a criticism why does 500 years of criticism not do that I guess I'm not that I've read all of it obviously about King Lear but um that was definitely like so refreshing when you're when you're a student I guess to feel like your intellectual life this this is is like has is just basically about the most important things in your real life like that you know that there's like he's very good at somehow not just like not this you're not just like doing this like fusty like clever exercise when you're reading a Shakespeare play you're like thinking about the most important things that that like perturb you on a daily basis basically yeah and I think that that I mean that speaks a little bit I was going to ask you to say a little about like why doing this seems so radical like within philosophy or so you know Maybe you can you can tell a little bit of history about like sort of when Cavell came on the scene and philosophy like you do in the article and what he was reacting against. You know, so there's a historical way to tell that story. But I think like the question, you know, you said, like, why hasn't it for 400 years? He has this kind of psychoanalytic reading of this, which is like it's exactly because these things actually perturb us that we avoid looking mm-hmm. at them, you know, that we like somehow flee into theory or logic or these like these like you know the quest for certainty is the name of one of his books and he sees this like all over not only in the opening scene of King Lear but all over like Anglo-American philosophy and um, so he has that I think the Freud thing you mentioned Freud is such an important thinker to him and I feel like that sort of reading of like there's a reason a lot of us intellectuals or academics or just people like want to avoid talking about these things they're hard and challenging mm-hmm. and can be painful to think, you know honestly about yeah I, I think um well so Freud is a kind of also like a biographical hinge between his like because he as I as I described sort of briefly in the piece he Cavell had like he was sort of born to a musician mother um and had been a very talented musician growing up and had basically wanted to be a musician and then he like went to Juilliard in New York and then he um and then he basically found himself, he was studying composition at Juilliard and found himself like bunking off, going to Juilliard and like going to the movies and going to the theatre and like just reading Freud all day for like 12 hours a day. And then he that was what kind of led him to quit um, quit music forever and then kind of restart his sense of his vocation and go and study philosophy. Um, although even then he then, so he went to study philosophy, um, but I think he he didn't start studying it really with the sense that he'd found a replacement for music. And I think he, as we were talking about, found like the kind of dominant analytic tradition, just like excessively technical, specialized, like divorced from the kind of profound concerns, I guess he would have found in Freud and like found in art and film and stuff. And this was a time when like logical positivism kind of was dominating. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I guess it wasn't until like, so he started a dissertation, which he wasn't that interested in doing. And then he had this kind of transformative experience when JL Austin, who's like a, an Oxford academic who was like kind of one of the pioneers, I guess, of like 
ordinary language philosophy, which was this like the new big thing at Oxford at the time. This is be like in the, I guess, in the fifties, and um, and yeah, so Austin came to to America and like gave um, some some lectures which Cavell saw and he just was like totally like converted to this new this new cool thing um and then he like ended up like ditching his dissertation like restarting it um and and then he was like this is now I feel like I have something to say to philosophy this is like this is me and I guess um I guess what I think I think I tried to kind of explore this in the piece I'm not sure how successfully but I think what he liked about ordinary language philosophy was many things one was like so ordinary language philosophy I guess was like um the idea that rather than like philosophy being about kind of speculating about these grand metaphysical abstractions like what is free will or like like that kind of at that level it was like it was actually just this more kind of quotidian practice of just like um we can figure out what words mean and what like our concepts are by just like thinking about how we use language every single day. Like, and so Austin was kind of famous for these, like he had this like kind of fastidious wry style and he would kind of like draw out what different kind of concepts were like the concept of an excuse or the concept of a mistake by just like finally looking at the distinctions between what it means to say, like I shot my donkey by accident or I shot my donkey by mistake or whatever. Um, and it was important to him to look at like how we use these words as opposed to just like this sort of theory of definitions, right? That was part of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like um, like how any any kind of native speaker used these words, not exactly, not just like this, like uh, not the kind of expert like jargon of the word. It was like how, yeah, just like how we use them every day casually. Um, I guess with the idea that like, our meanings, all we need for meaning is kind of compacted in, in those ordinary exchanges. Um, and to which anyone with it, like to which anyone has access who speaks the language, although Cavell would then feel like Austin. And I guess he too had this like particular knack or not here. We called it a knack, like a talent kind of, or an ear um, for, I guess, uh, for kind of elaborating these examples, these examples of like how language was used. And yes, I guess what what Cavell, like part of what Cavell liked about that was, A, I think it's attention to to language um, in a way. Like I think that has some... Just it's it's like this. That's it's a kind. I think that's also why it's Cavell and also why all new language philosophy is is like appealing to an English student because a literature student. Sorry, because it's it's yeah. It's all about like close attention to words and and. But I think also he liked um, the I guess like democratic kind of ethos of ordinary language philosophy, which is like. Yeah, no one is an expert on like no one can be no one can really be an expert philosopher because philosophy is a discipline that's just about like, as Cavell would put it, like ordinary things. It's about what humans can't help thinking about is the kind of thing he would say stuff like it's what humans cannot is about things that humans simply cannot fail to know, like death or God or whatever. And yeah, so I think he liked the idea that ordinary language philosophy kind of requires you to ask yourself what you would say in a given context in order to figure out what something means. Like, in effect, self-reflection becomes a technique that's, like, valid. And so I think that, in a sense, like, if you amplify that idea into different, into all kinds of criticism and thought, it's like, it's basically asking you to attend to your own experience and saying that is relevant to this, like, discipline. And you can do that in these rigorous ways, basically, which, yeah. Yeah, I love this line from your piece where you say philosophy, as Cavell understood it, was a willingness to think not about something other than what ordinary human beings think about, but rather to learn to think undistractedly about things that ordinary human beings cannot help thinking about. Um, I think that's a great way of putting yeah, it. Yeah, I think that might be Cavell's. Cavell. Well, it was, it's a mix of you and Cavell, yes. The second part, I think, is a quote from Cavell. But I think that's a great, he puts it well in that. In well. that uh, yeah. I guess undistractedly is kind of an interesting term there because it's like it's I think it both it it kind of relates to what you were saying about the avoidance thing where it's like um these things are like yeah quotidian preoccupations 
Right. But we actually might want to, well, A, we might, I think the undistracted is meant to indicate that philosophy is a place where you think about those things in a certain kind of rigorous way. It's not just like, you know, just like lying on your back and like contemplating whatever it's, it's, it's it is like has its methods and techniques and stuff, but also undistracted because, yeah, we might, we might have reasons we don't want to think about those things. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. I think the other thing I was thinking about, as you were saying, that I think appealed to, well, I don't know if, it, I think it appealed to Caval in terms of the, in line with sort of the democratic nature of ordinary language philosophy. I always thought there's also, in comparison with a lot of the sort of um, more like postmodern critiques of language and the linguistic turn and stuff, there was always an essential optimism, I felt like, to the Caval approach, which is like, instead of emphasizing all the things that language can't do, you know, all the ways that like we misunderstand each other, there's this sense, like, look at how much we actually are able to communicate just with like our everyday language. Like we actually are able to like communicate with most other people most of the time, like all kinds of things, like even just by pointing at something or like grunting in a certain context, someone else will know what we mean. And that for me was like a big paradigm shift. And like, I think as an intellectual and academic, certainly you're sort of taught to think about constantly how confused everyone is with their language, how they don't use words the right way, how like we're all like talking past each other and no one ever understands anything. And there's almost like a pleasure taken in that, like, uh, and then you had these logical positivists or the, you know, who were like, oh, we're going to like tell you exact, we're going to figure out a better way of using language. And he wanted it. He wanted to say like, and he felt he was drawing on Wittgenstein for, with this, like, no, look at actually all the ways like our ordinary words and ways of speaking do communicate so much. Yeah, totally. I think the, the concept of the ordinary is like, is yeah, obviously like very important to Cavell and very compelling, I think as a, especially for some, like, I don't quite know why, but I think I remember being as a like undergraduate, definitely that had great appeal. The kind of, um, the idea that, yeah, the ordinary is, is like not something to flee from or to transcend. Um, but I think you're, you're onto something as well about, um, this, this way that Cavell wants us to recognize that in a sense, like, or to note to to be to be in a way like awestruck by the the degree to which yeah we can communicate and that we make sense to each other and that when I cry out in pain you know I'm in pain and stuff and yeah I remember when he says like when I say my foot hurts you know to comfort me not my foot like that's actually amazing <laughs> yeah that's like that's one of those like surreal funny thing like he he I think there's a kind of surreal surrealness like about sometimes the way. I think Cavell, and this is, I think, from Wittgenstein too, like this way that he he um, tries to like show us the the depth of, I think he sometimes calls it the depth of convention yeah. or in a sense, like how far conventions like and language kind of being one of them reach. And and this is all, I think, in a sense, part of the therapeutic mission of, of I think, Cavell's, you can call it philosophy, or I prefer to sort of just call it criticism in some way, but the, um, which is like to kind of, I guess, yeah, to to reassure us, well, not reassure us, but in a sense, it's like a thing you have to kind of do again and again, continually, really. Um, it's almost like a daily practice, which is to like, that basically like um, our language is enough. And like, we don't, we're always trying to find, this is kind of where his idea of skepticism has this like tremendous, like psychoanalytic depth where he's kind of saying, he he like is trying to like assuage the the perturbed person who feels that who worries that like you you know you can never see my pain you literally can't see inside me you can't feel my pain how can you know it exists like and this he th he basically reads the desire for like certainty about other people's experience and about as an effect like not like it's a very human desire but like that we can in a sort of disarm it by um yeah, by re by acknowledging the importance of what he would call acknowledgement. He says something like the slack of knowledge can never be taken up by, sorry, the slack of acknowledgement can never be taken up by knowledge. Right. So like we want this like impossible certainty of each other, which sort of in a way is a, is a desire to overcome our separateness from each other. Um, and he's kind of saying, yeah, we can't do that. <laughs> so like, we but can't we do can that, be, but like, look at how much we can do. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like actually there's all these nuances of, yeah, his attention to like the nuances of interpersonal communication is definitely like, yeah, like a, a thing that he, he often, it's almost like he's sometimes in his writing, like elaborating a typology of 
tiny little like gradations of communication not just like things we say but yeah like ways that praise can actually be denying of someone or like this very like sensitive um things to sort of show us yeah exactly how much how much we can communicate despite our separateness basically yeah so so i think i mean so i want to shift a little to get to the to the to the topic of your piece the style of his writing because it's very it's noteworthy or interesting given all the aspirations we've been talking about, the democraticness, the emphasis on ordinary language, the sort of the feel I think we both have that he's like writing about ordinary experience in a way that very few philosophers, uh, you know, have been able to. That nevertheless, you open up his book and, you know, I'd I'd ask you the first time you read him uh, because partly because I have such a vivid memory of reading, uh, opening up the claim of reason. I was at my friend Johnny Thacker's uh, uh, apartment, actually, in, in, who's a colleague at the point now, studied philosophy and, at at, uh, at Oxford, and then was at University of Chicago. And I pulled this book off the shelf because I'd heard Cavell's name in my program. He was he was very highly thought of, and um, you know, I just read this first sentence. Do you do you have the do you have claim of reason? Uh, I don't have it right with me. Yeah, I've got, got it, right it called there. up so I can read you just the beginning. I'll just, I don't even know if I can get through the whole paragraph because the first sentence is, is a, is a paragraph, but it gives a good sense of just the style. Although, uh, you know, or you, you, you can maybe comment on how good a sense it gives of the style after I read it. So this is how the claim of reason starts. If not at the beginning of Wittgenstein's later philosophy, since what starts philosophy is no more to be known at the outset than how to make an end of it semicolon, and if not at the opening of philosophical investigations, since its opening is not to be confused with the starting of the philosophy it expresses, and since the terms in which that opening might be understood can hardly be given along with the opening itself, semicolon, and if we acknowledge from the commencement any way leave open at the opening that the way this work is written is internal to what it teaches, which means that we cannot understand the manner, parentheses, call it the method, before we understand its work. And if we do not look to our history, since placing this book historically can hardly happen earlier than placing it philosophically, nor look to Wittgenstein's past, since then we are likely to suppose that the investigations is written in criticism of the Tractatus, which is not so much wrong as empty. It goes on and on for a couple more sentences. Then where and how are we to approach this text? How shall we let this book teach us this or anything? So that's uh, that's the opening of the claim of reason, and um, yeah, I want to ask you about that paragraph and how how you see it relating to like his style. But I'll just say when I first read it, I mean, my first reaction was extreme irritation, sort of like uh, sort of like the guy uh, that you mentioned, um, you know, at the beginning of your essay. Uh, I and, and in some ways, I felt that. Uh, an impression I now would completely disavow, but I felt that this was like a really bad instance of academic writing. Too many caveats, you know, too many parenthetical phrases. He can't like figure out what he wants to say. So he tries to say it all. I thought it was, um, I thought it was really like, oh my God, this is like almost a travesty of bad academic writing. Yeah, I, I wish I could remember what I felt about when I first read that sentence. But but the um, it's a very like widely quoted sentence. It's a very famous sentence, and I guess um, it was sorry, not very famous, very famous within Cabellian literature. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 also like I feel like in that sentence, the reason. So it's obviously um, it's really long. It's like a paragraph long, and it's sort of it's like kind of impossible to follow as like, as you, as you were reading, there was like these, obviously all the semicolons, like all these kind of if clauses, which don't quite land. And are then like constant, like qualifications and like modifications and conditions. And like, so like, yeah, it's, it's, and it's obviously also, um, and it's also kind of, um, self-conscious in a way, like it's obviously about the sentence is about beginnings and it is the beginning sentence of this book. And it's like, it's saying to you the way this work, I think he's referring to the investigations, although it's a little bit, so Wittgenstein's philosophical investigations, but it's somewhat um, ambiguous or equivocal in whether he's talking about that work or the work you're reading. And he's saying like this, yeah, the way this book is written is internal to what it teaches. So it's, he's saying like style is important. Right, and then there's, yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And there's like really eccentrically styled first sentence. So it's, it's, I guess the reason I think of it is like not necessarily representative. And there's also those kind of, um, so like actual sort of wordplay, like leave open at the opening, <laughs> that kind of stuff. I guess like I, it's definitely like representative in a sense, like it's a mood, it's, a, it's definitely like a certain kind of Cavell, that sentence, but I find it like a bit more, uh, it's slightly more, it's like he's he's being deliberately playful and performative basically in that sentence in a way that I wouldn't necessarily say is characteristic of the rest of it or lots of his other writing, which is like he's kind of dramatizing something in that sentence. Um, whereas I feel like his, the rest of his writing is some, I mean, in a sense, and I think he's somewhere warns against reading his work like this in an interview says something like he distinguishes his writing from being any in any way mimetic of of thought like it's not like you're just but there is nevertheless I think like a sense in which his writing resembles both his speaking and also resembles like it does kind of resemble like following the ramifications of a train of thought which is why it's often I think regarded as self-indulgent this is kind of perhaps the most the most like uh popular accusation um because it's like this in a sense he's displaying a responsiveness to his own mind or whatever um i was just gonna say this question came up actually in some of the responses to your essay do, do you know what his like method for writing was if a lot of the time it was you mentioned something about he didn't like to revise uh, or I, I don't know, or like something about how much of it was lectures, you know, that it, did he speak in a similar way? Yeah. I mean, I've been told, I, I didn't ever see him speak, but um, some of the, le- some of the pieces in, sorry, in the new book, which is the like ostensible occasion for the essay that I wrote is, um, which is here and there. And it's like the first sort of posthumous collection of bits and pieces, basically that were, most of which I think are unpublished. But since the 80s, and a lot of those were like lectures, like or keynote addresses or whatever. So I've heard that, that Cavell in conversation was quite like Cavell in writing, but I, I can't speak for it myself. But I think, what, also, sorry, the other reason why I think the claim of reasons opening sentences is a kind of, I think he's announcing himself to the world of philosophy in some way, because it's like his big magnum opus. Like it's a really big, like 400 page plus book and it's like dense. And I think it's still kind of, yeah, it's, it's it's kind of his masterpiece, you would probably say. Um, and um, he's he's in a sense like I think he yeah he's dramatizing the way in which for him philosophy the question of of how philosophy begins is is always is always um, in question as it were. Like he and I think this is yeah to just to go back to the thing of self indulgence. I think there's this thing about Cavell which is like the reason that. I, I myself feel ambivalent, I think, about him, part of the reason. In the one sense, like, he's been, I think, quite influential on the way I think, and I obviously feel great affection for a lot of his writing, and um, but also can feel, as a lot of people do, I think, quite irritated by uh, the way he writes. And I think as I've, like, left academia and now, like, read, like, ordinary journalism more than, like, academic books and stuff I'm even more intolerant of basically writing that isn't simple and clear (laughs) in a way um and because yeah he has very long sentences and he doesn't he doesn't seem to like I say I don't know if he how what his actual writing process was but like the senses that he doesn't revise because he effectively like keeps revising process in the sentences if that makes sense like usually if if you can't think of the right word and then you like try three more you then like choose one eventually in the edit right you don't just like leave right you don't narrate you don't narrate like if one of my students was narrating their search for how to begin a paragraph I'd be like you can just put what you ended up with here yeah I think the term is throat clearing which yeah which people people usually tell you to cut so yeah I'm definitely like less less sort of taken with that now but I do nonetheless think that what some people regard as this self-indulgence I think does come from this like almost impossible ideal or standard for himself of rigor, which is like, you need to be like for philosophy to begin, you have to like effectively be perturbed by the question you're going to be taking up. Like you can't just do anything like 
on autopilot because you need to file your whatever paper or you need to like and I think the way you have to sort of like work your way into that question seeming really important to you and for you basically need to speak in a way that, that, you, that interests you um basically is one of his like key in a sense morals um and but I think it means that it does sort of wring his prose out of shape in some ways and I think if you think about his he wrote I think this is the yeah, the last book book he wrote um was called Little Did I Know and it's his it's an autobiography a philosophical autobiography basically um although it was written I think eight years before he died it came out in 2010 but the um that book is like it's like quite a difficult book even though it's just like a memoir because it's it's structured not like a linear chronological narrative like I was born in Atlanta and whatever and then I went to Harvard and then it's like it's basically like written with these like a diary effectively where he's like dating each entry is dated in the current I think it's like 2003 or whatever 2004 and so he's like he's basically like only writes when he feels a burst of inspiration to like write and it does have some like chronology like he does you know it's not like he's just like literally free associating but he's prioritizing responsiveness to his own interests effectively and inspiration rather than to like the more sociable demand to write a chronological narrative. Yeah. Yeah. I like that idea a lot that you mentioned about like that part of how you generate, how how you start a work of philosophy for him is to sort of show how you're perturbed by something and show why it won't leave you alone. You know, it speaks to sort of what you said earlier about like giving the undistracted attention to the thing you can't stop thinking about. And it actually reminds me of the only thing I remember from Little Did I Know, which uh, I I remember two things from it. I remember just thinking the title was brilliant Mm. (laughs) Um, for for an autobiography. He has a real knack, I think, for titles and a kind of, I mean, he has a poetic ear. I, I think that's undeniable. And that's why like, when I say like, I disavow my initial response, like, there's a way in which that sentence, like you said, it's like, oh my God, throat clearing of the worst kind that you could imagine in academics. But you read it that way first. And then later, somehow, once you've actually been converted to use like a Cavellian word to like, to his way to see that what he's doing is quite intentional. And, and, and he does have this poetic ear, you see it as something very different, I think. And you start thinking, okay, why did he do this? But the other, the other line I, I remember from that is he's, he's paraphrasing something from Wittgenstein and it has to do with this therapeutic idea of philosophy. And he says something like the goal, it's as if the goal for Wittgenstein was not certainty, but peace, like to reach a state of peace where the thing that perturbed you doesn't perturb you anymore, at least for that moment, you know? And I always thought, I thought that was like a very powerful way of describing something that it's like you read him and it's like, you can tell his mind is like, so he has to show you the the unrest in his mind to get you to the to to appreciate when you've reached the state of peace, you know. Yeah, no, exactly. I think um and I think that as I've read Cavell, I think I maybe this I don't think I did make it into my piece, but one thing that I think I've come to feel about him maybe more recently is that that the need to show basically that an in, a question taking take being his his interest in a question something being live for him basically um sometimes has a slightly anxious like quality to it and also he more or less says this himself you'll find that basically most things you can say about Cavell he's already said about himself because he was <laughs> both like really acute and also like very like self aware and wrote a lot about his own his reception and so on so like yeah you really can't really find anything original to say about him but but I guess I did sometimes um sense this do sometimes sorry sense this thing of because he's kind of given up certain kinds of rigor ideas of rigor in philosophy like he he doesn't do yeah super rational like cases and arguments and he writes in this much more meandering essayistic literary way. And he's like, I mean, uh, those aren't even sufficient descriptions of what his writing is like, but, but yeah, it's definitely not like an ordinary academic philosophical paper. Then he then means that there's a credit, there's a lot of burden on the style, which he acknowledges. Like he's like, well then, and I think he at one point says in an, in an essay, something like the burden of writing about art is the same as the burden of producing art or something like that. Like he, he acknowledges that 
his style has a lot to kind of do if he's not going to do the ordinary things. And so I think as a in a way in reaction to that, he's there's a kind of intellectual anxiety, I suppose, behind this need to like constantly be authentic in some way, like to be always writing from a place of like genuine preoccupation and interest rather than to sometimes just like write because you have to write or whatever. Like, um, so, and I think that also this idea that you need to be constantly interested in stuff that you're writing about or constantly that you need to really be perturbed by what you're writing, but whatever subject you're writing about that, like it sometimes seems to betray an anxiety to me that the world isn't actually interesting in in a way. Like it's almost like he has to inject it with, he has to animate the world for you and maybe for himself. Like, and that's somehow made me think that actually sometimes there's a bit of a specter of like the world seeming uninteresting or without consequence or meaningless in some way. And like, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Or that maybe he had like experienced the specter of this like separateness in a really strong way that he's that he's like writing to get through. And so, I mean, it, it does raise the question like of like what is the therapy he's doing for himself uh, in this writing? Mm. Yeah, that's that's a good question. He did. He also did do therapy. Like he was he was in analysis, I think, for a, maybe a couple of times. I think, and for quite a few years and also thought about becoming an analyst himself. Um, But yeah, I think that's why he likes film and art in general, I suppose. He he says in some interview somewhere that he, when he was writing his dissertation, he one night kind of just spunked off writing it because he was just stuck. And he went to see a film, he went to see an Ingmar Bergman film and was like ended up going home after the film and like just writing all night about this Bergman film and then I think like the elation of watching the film for him was like I think he says it was the absolute knowledge that everything in the film mattered that the film this like aesthetic object basically is kind of like a realm of total significance and I feel like the way Cavell reads the world in general like reads people's tiny microaggressions or micro denials and like is is kind of um reading the world as kind of full of total significance like a lack of acknowledgement for Cavell is a denial like you know there's not really like there's just like no space for like absence of meaning in 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 behavior and stuff and I feel like it's kind of that same will to read total significance into the world the, the sense that everything matters but to me that does sort of sometimes yeah betray a fear that everything doesn't sometimes in the world unlike in a work of art like some it could it's not clear how it matters or that it matters always or that there's a meaning that's really interesting i never thought about that that's a really interesting point uh it should say you you mentioned earlier on you know that cavell wrote about film and literature in addition to to more uh traditional well he never wrote any traditional philosophy but he wrote uh about philosophers too but i i guess i was curious for me the film stuff if someone was like new to cavell i think some of the film writing and pursuits of happiness or the world viewed can be like one of the more accessible places to start I think because it's quite concrete, like he'll he'll describe the films and he'll kind of explain how he's reading different characters in them. Do you have like a, is there is there like a advice you would give to someone who's sort of just getting, wants to know where, where, where to start with him, a certain book or essay that you would recommend? Mm. Yeah, I've heard Pursuits of Happiness, which is um, about Hollywood comedies in the sort of 40s. People regard that as like his most accessible book I've heard I don't think I found that myself necessarily but I I wasn't really into those films particularly but the um but, um yeah I guess I would probably still one of his best books is is the is his first collection of essays which is um titled must we mean what we say and that's got like the King Lear essay in it so I, it's not that it's not that it's like super accessible exactly definitely requires some like perseverance and like but I guess it's just it's sort of dazzling still in some ways like it's just like amazing I think lots of so it's but yeah I guess the question of accessibility in general is kind of an interesting one in relation to Cavell I guess we were sort of talking about this but he is this paradoxical figure because it's like he I think he he is 
people describe him as sort of dense and difficult and I've definitely found some of his writing a slog like even the, yeah, his memoir I remember being like oh god <laughs> but, like, um, but the um but there's a certain kind of like ordinary diction I suppose although I was thinking sorry actually well yeah a ordinary kind of diction like he's not he's not using like he doesn't make up like new words like Derrida or whatever like he's not right. it's not like you have to learn a kind of whole internal um idiosyncratic language to, to understand his writing but yeah it is but it so it's but it's also kind of intimate there's something like even though he's not I guess it's not that he really writes per, it's not like really confessional obviously the memoir is somewhat confessional I suppose but it's not really that it's like self-exposure exactly but there's just like a very strong sense of his presence and his voice and it's like an intimate kind of writing which I think feels confessional even when it's not I feel like yeah exactly when it's kind of not literally confessional and and he does yeah he, he he himself I think says that about his writing but that makes it kind of intrinsically accessible I think on some level um but it's interesting to think about this um although he does write with ordinary words like acknowledgement and the human and the ordinary and voice. And these are all kind of, he does have a slightly like eccentric. He does. I mean, it's hard to like think of an example, but he does have eccentric phrases and like, he does have a kind of idiosyncratic way of using words, which actually make them sound quite weird sometimes, but are very sort of resonant and powerful sometimes. Like he really captures I mean, he's got this like, and some of them you realize are sort of derived from some of his like real heroes. Like he, there's obviously Wittgenstein and J.L. Austin, as we talked about, but there's also like Thoreau and Emerson, another two other key figures for him that emerged somewhat later in the seventies, I think. But you, that they've, I mean, they've also got quite weird like styles in some ways, <laughs> like you know, or like kind of slightly like grand, unusual words in a way but they and he you sometimes find that he's actually borrowed borrowed phrases from those people and like acknowledgement for example is an ordinary word but it does become a somewhat like it does become almost a technical concept and not I don't want to say technical but like it's a it's a real concept in Cavell in the same way like separation and finitude is another one he uses and avoidance and denial yeah, it has almost like a personal meaning to him, to his writing, that you have to kind of get the hang yeah, of. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's a good one, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, so I mean, it, it, this is maybe follows from the question around uh, accessibility, but also authenticity, which you mentioned. In your piece, you talk about... Um, you have you talk about Cavell in relation to modernism. Actually, in the piece, I think you, you talk about Wittgenstein's investigations as a, as a modernist work. But I know that also in earlier drafts of the piece, there was more about Cavell and modernism. And uh, some of that got cut, not because it wasn't really interesting and um, uh, just who knows why. But uh, but I, I, I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit to say a little more about that, because I think this when you think about like like um, recommending Cavell to someone, I always have this sense, like because of my own reaction to it, like, yeah, I've got to like prepare them and be like, you've got to like hang with it. And like trust it in some way. And then at some point you kind of either will become converted or you won't, um, which doesn't mean you won't still like be irritated at times or whatever, but you'll, you'll become converted to the idea that like something that like the, the, the style is in some way, like he says, internal to the, what he's saying, it's justified by it in some way. And I guess um, that's a quality that I think uh, that I relate to a lot of modernist works of art mostly of art. Uh, but it's interesting to think of something like the investigations as being modernist in that sense. And so, yeah, I just, I, I wondered if you, you know, if you still think of, think of that as a useful term to think about what Cabell was doing. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, that he's described or he's just, yeah, he's described in the context of modernist writing, I think precisely, as you say, because of it, his divisiveness, like I think in a tribute to him by Marshall Cohen, what well, kind of ambivalent tribute to him after he died in 2018? It was like said that he he divides readers into insiders and outsiders. Um, although I think he actually in that essay then says, and this wasn't because he was a modernist, but it's because he was because he was a bad writer. <laughs> Not quite that. Um, he says like it was because of his personal idiosyncrasies is that he wrote this kind of troublesome, sometimes offensive prose and stuff. But I suppose like yeah, there's something anecdotally anyway, something cultish about 
um, about Cavell's reception, I think, which is like, and I think this is this somewhat explains my own like ambivalence versus that you're kind of part of a, you become, you're like part of the Cavellian, like you're a Cavell like, like Cavell. <laughs> and you don't necessarily like want to be part of that group necessarily, but you kind of are if you like it somehow. But then there's the kind of really benign and kind of nice side of that is that I've kind of found, even though Cavell has got this, because he's got such a kind of heterogeneous body of work, as we say, going from Shakespeare to film to sort of Wittgenstein and stuff, like people can like Cavell and have read very different bits of it and been taken with very different bits of it. But in general, when you meet someone that likes Cavell, I think you do have a sense of that you share something quite profound, basically. What well, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. That's the case with taste in general. Like when you, when, when you, it feels profound to like share liking for, for certain works of art and stuff. But I think that's particularly true of Cavell somehow, I guess because of the kinds of, those profound preoccupations about the human condition and whatever that like we've been talking about. So I suppose like that, that kind of cultishness, I guess, is associated with certain kinds of modernist work, although I guess more difficult and resistant modernist work. And I think that's why I don't know if I quite, there's something I wouldn't describe Cavell's work as like resistant to like there's not a res- there's not it's not deliberately trying to being resisted read in a certain way or whatever. I mean he would describe it I think as like demanding and like yeah. acting um, in a sense that he 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 demands a lot of himself and he therefore demands a lot of you. So kind of almost is a slightly like strenuous element to like his own writing and to to reading him too. So yeah, I guess also the other thing though that when he writes he all does write about modern the modern and modernism and um i was just trying trying to find the right passage but there's i think in um there's an essay in 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 the essay collection i mentioned his first one must be mean what we say called music discomposed and in that he talks about kind of like the experience of fraudulence as essential to modernism and and essential to all art but that modernism kind of radicalizes that or almost like yeah, radic- radicalizes that idea that like that you that in effect when you're looking at a piece of art, you're kind of asking like, is this art? Like that's one of the questions that you have to is this is this the genuine article? Like is this whatever like toilet seat a piece of art? <laughs> like? um, and I guess in a certain way, you could say that that is that question does. I mean, again, yeah, Cavell saying it does arise in kind of everything we read and look at. But I think in the sense that Cavell is modernist, I think you could say that that question does have a particular kind of acuity when you're reading Cavell because you are like is this guy like a phony like not a phony but is he's not definitely not that but is this is this guy just like kind of like rambling or is this amazing like is this like yeah or well and as you say or is he a narcissist too like which is a form of I think in that context often means to signal a certain kind of fraudulence or pretension you know a performance as opposed to something that like is genuine or authentic and I think that that dynamic is very familiar from like modernist writing too, where it's like the writer risks this and you as a reader have to like ask that about the work of art or the piece of literature. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think, I think risk is actually also another kind of important thing to think about in relation to him because um, there is something risky. I think Richard Rorty describes him as like the most like unguarded and like the philosopher who puts his neck out the most. And I think Cavell himself describes his his writing as like unguarded, undisguised. Like he's kind of, it's not that he's exposing literal details of his life, but he's like, he's putting himself on the line somehow. He's putting everything at stake. And he, he would sort of sometimes say that he's staking his life on things. Like he's, yeah. this is where maybe my like, I don't know. It can be a little melodramatic sometimes. <laughs> a little melodramatic. A little self-serious sometimes, I guess. Um which like, although again, you have to wonder whether you are just in some way being avoidant or like right. comfortable with that level of seriousness. It reminds me, I, I don't know, this is probably going to um, uh, cause a groan, but I, I kept thinking because because of the salience of autofiction in our culture right now, which I take to be like one inheritance of modernism, but kind of with certain interesting differences. And I kept thinking of the term of, of whether anyone uses the term auto philosophy for someone like Cavell and like something about, you know, 
Uh, and here and there, you talk about how he, he talks about the undisguised struggle in his writing. And I thought of, you know, Nausgaard and my struggle and the idea of actually thematizing one's own struggle within the work and whether anyone, I don't know, does that, does that, ter- I don't know, I'm curious, like, if you've ever thought about that term in relation to, uh, to Cavell. No, that's a great term. I definitely haven't, uh, I guess, well, what's his, what's that book, A Pitch of Philosophy is called, like, what's the subject to that? It's called, yeah. like, it's like, Passages in that, that that's a book from the nineties, I think, which is began as a lecture series. But but that's that was his most kind of explicitly autobiographical autobiographical exercises. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, autophilosophy. Yeah, definitely. I guess uh, I'm just thinking about the wan husks of autofiction. Isn't <laughs> you wouldn't describe Cavell's writing as wan husks of autophilosophy? Like it's extremely. No, like, I'm, I'm a defender of autofiction, or at least of its like best exemplars, you know, people like Sheila Hetty and Nausgaard. And so I like, for me, it's a compliment. But again, it's like, there's obviously the risk of it being totally empty. And we see examples of that too. And you could imagine so many people trying to do what Cavell does, and it just being like awful. Well, there's a, there, there's a line in, I think, in his autobiography, where his friend says like, Bad Cavell is awful. And I think he, and I think, um, and I think that means both Cavell doing, like, Cavell not being great on his best form, whatever, is, is awful. But I think that also means, like, derivative Cavell is awful, meaning, like, people like me who, when they first started getting into Cavell, would basically ended up writing somewhat like him. I, as a other thing I discuss in, in the piece, um, is like my own kind of, I think I call it like Cavellian infection, but just like his style, however idiosyncratic is, is somehow infectious. I think precisely because it's got this, like it has this sort of slack in the sentences he uses. He says phrases like, I would like to say that, or I wish I could have said, or like, I almost feel prepared to say like, it's almost like he's always like hedging, and auto narrating his own statements in some sense as if so it's yeah and it's like basically that's kind of useful because if you don't want to if you're not sure what you're saying like you can you're kind of being given these tools to be approximate in some ways like, <laughs> which is useful in writing because it doesn't always come out right the first time and stuff and then obviously you want to edit it and make it nicer which Cavell doesn't bother doing um, basically but but I think that when I like when you read pieces about Cavell by his kind of acolytes or people that are clearly a big admirers of him, some of them really do write, like you recognize they've caught the infection too. And they have a lot of these and stuff. And I do find it probably because I'm myself was a sufferer. I also find, I find that like a bit off putting. I'm like, there's something about like seeing derivativeness is not, is like not, I mean, I guess this kind of relates to the whole like fraudulence thing, but like you want people to have their own voices basically. And to like, and I think that that's kind of, thing Cavell was I think a bit aware of as well where he was he was obviously like he taught um philosophy and he was he seemed to enjoy teaching and be very good at it and his students say like he was amazing at kind of liberating you to speak like he was like not at all like a monologue or whatever and um he does seem like a very generous kind of interlocutor in general but nonetheless like there is a way in which he is he does have a kind of charismatic voice and mode of writing and thinking which I kind of feel like students like myself can you can end up yeah slightly being smothered by and you need to I I think you have to like exercise it yeah yeah I kind of feel like you need to like go there and then like recover <laughs> and like <laughs> yeah no we both shared the, the experience of like looking at emails we wrote when we were like in Cavell like period and seeing like all these extra clauses but I think you're right. There's something like if you can liberate yourself from the very specific stylistic ticks of Cavell, there's something there about like learning to pay attention to your own inner monologue in a way that, you know, uh, which again, obviously always risks this narcissism and involution, but at the same time can also be part of how you sort of communicate to someone why a certain problem has become resonant for you and why, why you want to talk about it. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think there's always the risk of subjectivism or relativism or narcissism. Like, you know, it's not, if you're writing, a, you know, it's not interesting to people necessarily that, like, that I thought about my dinner when I was watching that TV TV show or whatever. Like, you know, that you need to, like, but I think, I guess, 
criticism or, or general communication about things like art, I suppose, are partly about testing or discovering the boundaries of 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 the relevant and the interesting to other people right. in a sense that that's why they like have a kind of sociality or they can that's why they're kind of important i guess to us which we want to find out what we share and what's interesting yeah. to others but i do think that like yeah cavell is one of those writers who kind of uh, enacts and therefore licenses your own attention to your experience um and what you're really feeling when you're reading something and that makes you a good reader I think in like a kind of very capacious sense like a reader of everything like if you feel like you you can take your own experience seriously of what you're reading you're not having you're not trying to have the experience you think you should be having you're paying attention to what you don't understand or what's incoherent or that feels like a kind of widely transferable (laughs) sort of mode of attention but I would say the other thing that he does say that's what I mean by I think sometimes necessary to remember the rigor of his his um writing and thinking and not just think of it as like this pure like attention to himself which is that he does say things like you need to let the object of your interest or let the object you're considering teach you how to consider it or whatever Mm -hmm. so it's like i guess return to that opening sentence of the claim of reason he's that opening sentence is sort of teaching you how to read this book that you're about to read and I guess that's the sense in which you're actually you're it's not at all about just like bringing your own baggage to everything you read it's like actually about being totally responsive to the singularity of the object you're approaching and and that's that's one of the reasons like as someone who did a lot of sort of in grad school my focus was sort of the intersections between literature and philosophy and I read a lot of philosophers writing about literature and for the most part they do the thing you were just saying, the second thing, they have a theory, they go to a work of literature, they sort of tell you how it demonstrates this theory or, or cuts against it or whatever. And I, Cavell was so distinct in this regard from the sense that like, first of all, his attention to form in artworks. And then second of all, the ability to sort of, or at least to give the reader the impression that he was allowing the artwork to teach him something philosophically, as opposed to just be an example of something. Um, I think it's like, is, is really unusual. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Again, just to sort of then reverse that, like, he's very like, although he is very open to the singularity of the object or whatever, like not just as you say, as an example of some like prior theory, he also does. And I think you get this if you, if anyone reads the new collection, the, the posthumous collection here and there, like he is, there's a certain kind of intransigence or inflexibility in his mind, I think. I mean, not in his mind, but just like he, he really likes, you know, Wittgenstein, Austin, Emerson and Thoreau and like. He's coming back to some yeah, of the same. Yeah. There is those passages like that, that he just goes back to the same things and anything he approaches, like if he's reading Walter Benjamin or like whatever, whatever subject he he comes to, he's like, he can really only come to it with that kind of like arsenal and there's certain sort of, it's like he has to almost like absorb this new alien thinker or whatever into his like idiosyncratic universe or he kind of can't touch it at all. There's something like a bit all or nothing about his like, yeah, something sort of, yeah, slightly, slightly intransigent and like inflexible about his, his like, yeah, approach to the foreign. Yeah, yeah. So I, we're getting toward the end. I just wanted to ask you a, a sort of a sort of unrelated, maybe not totally unrelated to what we've been talking about. But you know, you're you're an editor at New Left Review, which is a very much a political magazine. And I wonder, like, you don't talk about this much in the article, but like, if you feel that Cavell, you know. Do you think he had a political, a politics or, or, or a political valence in his writing? How do you see that part of what you do in relation to your dissertation on Cavell? Um, he certainly wrote about politics at times, but he's not often the kind of philosopher that's like quoted, you know, in political essays. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, because it's like a kind of silence in his work. I mean, it's not a silence. That's not quite true. But he does say things. He says he's like shy of politics, and and yeah, I think it's. I don't know. I mean, there's been essays about the new book which have pointed that out 
the criticisms have been like voiced in terms of not quite politics, but just like he, not the, and he's not at all reactionary, but like there's just something like, yeah, conservative and some about like this idea that we have these forms of life and we have these like conventions and we all like. Well, just, yeah, the idea that conventions run deep and are yeah. not just, like, things to be overturned. Or yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, He's not, like, a radical. Yeah, exactly. He's not looking at, like, how do we change the world? Like, how do we transform our forms of life explicitly anyway? And I think this kind of comes down to partly an aversion to to antagonism in his, like, mm. whole... That's kind of his whole, like, raison d'etre. I feel like he's almost, like... I think in his you know, his early, early writing, he'll talk about his writing as kind of intervening in a way where he feels like philosophers are talking past one another, like they're arguing about these things, but they don't seem to be hearing each other or like, and it's almost like he's writing, he writes in this, as he would say, very non-unassertive, non-combative way. And he's, he's trying to like, I guess, like dissolve argument rather than win them or like come down on either side of one. And I think like, yeah, being being a political being means like understanding there are conflicts. And I think there's a kind of, I associate his, his relative, that kind of aporia in his, in his work or lacuna or whatever as like related to his, his aversion to, to antagonism and, and, and combat basically, um, which I kind of think has a, I'm sure he would read, he would understand psychoanalytically basically in him, his, in himself, but, but yeah, I do find it somewhat like, I guess, I don't know how to understand that in myself. Like what's, I mean, what's my, I mean, I'm, I guess I must be quite attracted to that, <laughs> to that in a sense, not not necessarily being unpolitical, but just like, I think that, yeah, I think I do know what it's like to find it quite troubling when people disagree in a certain way, like, and have radically different worldviews and like, and even different tastes like that can be like a real that can be a troubling thing I think and I think Cavell I guess to me is maybe yeah partly compelling because he finds ways of talking about that and I guess also resolving those rifts thanks for listening to the point podcast to find out about future episodes subscribe to the podcast or sign up for a newsletter at thepointmag.com